First off, though, let's talk about the COVID-19 pandemic in British Columbia with my guest, Andrew Wilkinson, leader of the BC Liberal Party's leader of the opposition in the legislature. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. Great. Thanks for coming on. You called this week for the relaxation of some of the COVID-19 pandemic restrictions on a regional basis. So parts of the province that have had a very low outbreak of the virus. Uh, What do you want to see happen there? Well, let's get it clear. We haven't said let's relax the the guidelines for all over BC, region by region. What we've said is, isn't it time to consider regionally specific approaches for such a big province where the incidence of the disease varies so widely? So we're asking Bonnie Henry, is there a way to do that safely? And a secondary part of that, of course, is to get an understanding of what the conditions are that would allow for a region-wide uh, approach. Northern health, you probably know, is the northern two-thirds of the province. There are 300,000 people there, and it's an area the size of France. There's currently one case there that is known. Interior health is the size of England. There's one case there. Vancouver Island is the size of Taiwan. There's one known case there, and all the rest of them are in Vancouver and Fraser coastal health area. But aren't they already doing a sort of a regional approach because we have regional health authorities that have put in some specific orders in their regions? Like I recall in the interior, I believe it was the Fraser Health Authority that uh, shut down gyms, gymnasiums, after there was an outbreak at some gyms. So there have been some regional specific orders, right? But I'm just trying to figure out exactly what do you want? Like, what would you like to see done here? Well, what we've got in British Columbia now is a huge province with the cases concentrated in Fraser Health and Vancouver Coastal Health, which is area code 604, and the rest of the province has almost no caseload, which is a very good thing, and we thank Dr. Henry for bringing us to this point. But there are a lot of people's livelihoods in those areas that are about to run into the mud. People are losing their businesses, they're losing their savings, and they're reasonably saying to us, under what circumstances could we reopen more actively and get back into a normal way of life? It's a very reasonable question. And so the question we have for Dr. Henry and the Ministry of Health is, so what are the criteria that would lead us to have a more broad opening in area code 250, kind of like the difference that happens already in Ontario, Quebec, and Alberta, where they have different arrangements for low-instance areas from high-instance areas? Okay, but there are very few businesses that are shut down by a provincial order. So I'm just wondering exactly what you would like to see done. Like one of the major restrictions that's still in place province-wide is is the ban on public gatherings or gatherings of people of more than 50 people in size. Are you saying you would like that to be scaled back in regions where maybe you could have larger groups gathering in, in the north or on the island? No, that's a very specific example, Mike. I think the concern we all have... You give me an example of what you want. The concern is the level of consumer confidence if you're in Terrace or in Nanaimo or Cranbrook and there's almost no COVID anywhere within 100 miles of you. Right. Then people are saying, well, I think I'm supposed to stay home now. Is there room, and the question goes to Dr. Henry in the Ministry of Health, is there room to say to those folks in those communities... Look, the incidence where you are is so low, you can actually have some confidence getting back on the community. Use a mask, do the social distancing if you want to, but let's get back to life. Whereas I think we know in the Lower Mainland, 
the level of shutdown is still very, very high. You walk down Broadway, and a lot of the stores are closed. Yeah, it's uh, you go though. downtown, and there are very few people there. Surprisingly few. Yeah, but it's not. A lot of those stores are not shut down by a provincial order. A lot of those stores are shut down as a decision of the store owner. Because there's right. no consumer confidence that people don't want to show up because they're worried they're going to get the virus or spread the virus. Okay, well, what do you want the government to do about that? Well, as I've said, you know, if area code 250 is this huge yeah. area of British Columbia, everything except the Fraser Valley and, and the Sunshine Coast and the Lower Mainland, right. and those areas outside of area code 604 have very, very little uh, disease burden that we know yeah, of. But the not viral shut- caseload is very small. Yeah, but so they're not can we down. have differential rules like they do in Alberta, Ontario, and Quebec? Okay, have a listen to this. Here's um, Dr. Bonnie Henry. She was asked about your proposal yesterday, and here is what she said. I believe that one of the things that has allowed us to um, manage this pandemic in the way we have and to keep our overall numbers low is because we've had a coordinated provincial approach. And we have seen the numbers decrease as the testing capacity increases, as the public health teams are doing their work, as our businesses are opening and and changing around the province in sync. Um, And I don't feel that there's a, a differential risk. Okay, so she doesn't think that there is this sort of differential risk as she described it now she went on a little further have a look this is a very short this is a much shorter clip where she's she just talks about the whole approach to and whether it should be changed at this point this approach has really served us well um, and i think we should have a continued approach unless there's good evidence that there's a reason not to okay where's the evidence to change what she's doing because she's been pretty yeah and i think successful. this is the question the public fairly have if there's one uh, known case north of Cash Creek. There's one case on Vancouver Island, that person's in hospital, and one known case in Interior Health. Is that the evidence that's necessary, that's required, the information you need? Once we get down to zero, do people carry on with this indefinitely? I mean, we're asking a reasonable question, as the health minister said yesterday, a very reasonable question. What are the criteria how to make the decision to open things up more okay if one region opens up faster than another region do you think that people in other regions might want to go visit there i mean bc has been very successful so far in fighting this virus so i don't know are you, are you suggesting that we should there should be more non-essential travel to these regions of the province and that should be okay aren't, aren't you risking an outbreak if that happens well that's the question for dr henry if we have people going from the interior health zone of 250 north to visit their friends or go fishing in northern health is that a risk when you're going from an area with one case for a million people to another area with one case for 300,000 people okay let's talk a little you're a medical doctor so i know that you know this stuff and you know how to deal in specifics so let's talk some specifics about exactly what you would potentially like to see happen here because i'm just trying to figure out how this would work so you're saying on vancouver island or in northern british columbia where i agree with you there is a very very low transmission rate almost no cases except in very very minor examples as you said one each one each right so what are you saying should be allowed in these regions that's not being allowed now potentially Well, the question is, to Dr. Henry and the Ministry of Health, under what circumstances can we relax and open up and get on with our regular lives and go shopping and 
and have a normal life on northern Vancouver Island or northern BC? How long do we have to be at zero cases? And we know that there'll be apparently another uh, decision around the middle of this month in terms of loosening restrictions. But the question is, so on what basis do you decide? It's a respectful question. You know, like you say, I'm a medical doctor asking another medical doctor for her opinion. Oh yeah, it's a, I agree with you. It's a respectful question. I'm just trying to figure out how it would work. So let's let's say, let me give you an example of one of the restrictions that we're all living under, and that's like the restaurants. Now restaurants have been allowed to reopen, but with strict social distancing rules in the restaurants, they got to spread out the tables and that kind of thing. Are you saying that in regions where the transmission rate of the virus is very very low, that restaurants should just go back completely back to normal? That there should be no rules on minimum distance between tables in a restaurant? Is that what you mean? That, that's a really good question for Dr. Henry. Because I'm asking you. I, got, I don't, I don't have Dr. On, Henry here, right? I'm asking if you. The case you're, you're the leader zero, of the op- This is your what are idea. What are allowed to do? And how long does it have to be at zero? This is, you know, the New Zealand problem. If you're an isolated place like New Zealand, the case count goes to zero. Do you just stay that way indefinitely and live in a fortress and watch your economy shrivel up and wait and see? Do you think we're or opening too when you slowly? Get to zero, do you declare victory? You're right. We so don't you think- know. How will that decision be made, Dr. Henry? Okay, so you think, do you think overall generally, though, I'm asking your opinion, not Dr. Henry's right now. I'm asking your opinion. Do you, you think the economy is reopening up too slowly in B.C. right now? It's very difficult to say the level of economic activity right now, but we sure do get a lot of reports from people who have struggled to reopen their business, and there are almost yeah. no customers. Okay, here's what I can so do right it's now. It's a chicken and the egg problem. If you say, well, you shouldn't go downtown unless you need to, and you go downtown because you're thinking, well, I better go check out my little sandwich shop and see if I can get things going, and you put some stuff in the window and nobody shows up. And you think, oh, my gosh, I'm doomed. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the impact of this pandemic on small businesses, especially restaurants, which have been absolutely battered by this pandemic for sure. Now, listen, check this out. There's a restaurant in Victoria that is now banned tipping by customers in the restaurant. They are raising the wages for their workers. Menu prices going up as well. The Full Epi Bakery and Cafe in Victoria, which is a great place, by the way. Uh, I've been in there several times. Got the owner on the line, Cliff Lear. Hey, Cliff, thanks for coming on. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, you do a great job there. I mean, you're like a master baker, I bet, right? Uh, I've been baking for about 25 years. So. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you can tell. The, the stuff is great in your in your place. I'll just say that right away. Yeah. People coming to Victoria should check it out. Um, and we also run a, a restaurant, Agrius, in Victoria, too. So right. we What's cover a ton What's of wine. What's the name of the restaurant? Agrius Restaurant. Agrius, yeah. yeah and we, so we have like a wide spectrum of how we're dealing with the current situation. Okay, Cliff, tell me what's happening with the, the tipping and your staff's wages and your menu prices. Well, in, you know, uh, kind of reassessing our business model and having to adjust for current times, um, we look at the core of what we're doing, which is, you know, quality food, and then also the people that are making it and serving it. And we can't have a business without them. So um, we need to make sure that they're taken care of. Okay, how much have you raised your employees' wages? Uh, about 20 to 25%. Our, wow. our kind of base wage for um, servers, dishwashers, now at $20 an hour. $20 an hour, that, that's pretty good for a restaurant. And now tell me about tipping. So how is that going to work in your places now, tipping? 
we've just we increased our prices for a while we had uh, like an auto grab on and as we realized that this is not a temporary situation that we're dealing with particularly in the restaurant industry this is going to be ongoing for many months to come um it was just cumbersome to have a price and then add a price on so we've just adjusted our prices so no more tipping is there like so when you go into your place is there a sign no tipping allowed or something we we just say you know you know don't worry about it we're paying our our staff a living wage tipping is not necessary uh we still do have some people uh wanting tips a lot of people are very appreciative of what, what we're still doing and are wanting to help people out um but generally you know it's a bit of an archaic system that you know there's been a lot of discussion in the industry for many years about um and particularly now when there's so much change going on if we're not doing things to move things in the right direction um you know, then, you know, when we restart again, we're going to be back in the same problem that's led to the current situation. Right. right. Okay. So no more tipping. You've raised your workers' salaries to 20 bucks an hour and your menu, how, how high of, uh, how much is the increase in your menu prices? How much has that gone up? Well, it's about 20 to 25%. Wow. Um, so we also, as a, as a business, needed to raise prices. It's not just about tipping. It's like we had to look at the whole equation of what we're doing here and to remain viable as a business. Um, you know, everything's costing more at this point in time. Um, ingredients, we work um, with local farms and d- directly with farms. So we need to make sure that they're supported um, as well as our staff. If you look at like, you know, if someone's at $15 an hour and working 40 hours a week, that's 2400 before taxes, before any deductions. Um, so also, you know, how is someone going to live on that at this point in time if we're right. looking at, um, you know, wanting to make sure that staff are in, in a healthy, stable mental place? And, it, you know, there's, it's been brought up that, oh, what if, if we're not tipping, then we're going to get, you know, poor service. But if people are satisfied with their job um, and well taken care of, then they're going to give great service. It's also up to the employer um, for us to be training our staff and to be, hiring the right people to do a great job. We have amazing staff there. They're super right. pro, um, give great service all the time. What is, uh, what's been the reaction of your customers when they come in and they see the menu prices are up over 20%? What do they say? How do they react? Almost all of them have been very supportive. We have like a great uh, community-based business, been in Victoria for, for 20 years. And um, most people are very supportive. They understand the, the issues and what's going on and how hard it is for people. And, you know, for a lot of people... Um, the prices are not really that much more than what they were paying before, including the tips. Yeah, right. If you're not tipping anymore, then okay, that sort of it's, it's, it's kind of low. the same, yeah. like slightly more. But this yeah. way, it, it just makes it standard across the board. That's the thing with the tipping system is, you know, there's there's no rules to it. It's all right. arbitrary and how people are feeling or, you know, what how they feel that service is being for the day. But these people are depending on it to live. So, is, is there a is there a risk, Cliff, that with your increased menu prices, if that results in, uh, I, I take your point that most of your customers are okay with it right now, but in the long term, if your customer base starts to go down, if they don't like those higher menu prices, for, and that forces you out of sure. business, then then your your employees don't even have a job. So no, that's been a big fear. I mean, we've been wanting to. You know, generally, we've been fairly progressive with paying our staff and for years of being wanting to pay them more they worked super hard um but you know we've been scared of losing business and and as a business we're always kind of just barely making ends meet and so definitely with this change that's our biggest fear that that we will lose business um but also if we don't make changes we'll go out of business so uh at least we're you know giving it our best shot and hopefully enough people support us and understand 
And um, at this point, like everything's changing in the world. And if we want to see restaurants around in six months, we have to do some changes. And, you know, it's a super hard time for for people with limited incomes. Um, And, you know, we're definitely very sensitive to that. Um, Okay. Cliff, yeah. the, Cliff, the food you serve is awesome. I, I can attest to that personally. Thank you for coming on, and good luck with your business going forward here. Okay, thanks a lot for having okay, me. Okay, thank you. Cliff Lear, he is the owner of the Full Epi uh, Cafe. He also owns another restaurant in Victoria. Let's get a take now from Mark Colgate. He's with the in the Faculty of Business at the University of Victoria, and he, he studies these kind of issues. Mark, thanks for coming on. What do you think about this experiment here at the Full Epi Restaurant? experiment so you know i think this is a perfect time to uh, to change your business model as uh, as cliff said um you know it's definitely an uphill battle there's no there's no doubt about it um many restaurants have tried it uh, in the past and i think it just goes back to what you said mike that the trouble is when people walk into a restaurant you know perhaps for the first time they see the prices they expect to play the tax and tip on top uh and and so when they see you know perhaps larger prices now because the tips included they might just you know might visit the website or walk in the restaurant and then and then decide not to go because in in comparison to maybe a similar restaurant uh, that you're choosing to go to, those prices seem a lot more expensive. So that's the danger: is that people don't realise that the the tips included, and so uh, they just think the prices are a lot higher than uh, than they are compared to another restaurant, and so they don't go there at all. Right. So that's that's the danger. So if they're a regular customer. Um, it may not be such a such a big deal, but if it's a if it's a new customer, obviously they always rely on new customers coming through the door. That's that's a real problem. I, I, and on the, you know, basically though, it's a great idea. I mean, people hate tipping, right? They really hate tipping, and so to have the tip included in the price just uh, removes that social dilemma that none of us really enjoy. Okay, I remember some other restaurants have tried this in the past. I remember yeah. there was a restaurant in Van- on Vancouver Island in Parksville a few years ago called, called Smoke and Water, and I remember interviewing the owner of that restaurant on the radio at that time, and he did a similar thing. He banned tipping, he raised yep. his employees' salaries, uh, he raised his menu prices, and it didn't work. I remember it, last, it lasted a little while, but then he scrapped it. He said it didn't really catch, catch on. Is this caught on anywhere? Any, no tipping policies in any restaurants anywhere? Example uh, was a Union Square Hospitality Group. So Dan, uh, Danny Mayer, who runs that uh, uh, company, there, you know, basically in the U.S., uh, five-star restaurants all over New York, and uh, he's banned it now for five years. Um, you know, they've had limited success. Uh, customers have slowly adapted to it. The biggest problem he found was that 40% of his staff left um, because wow. they, they wanted to have that control over the tips. Um, sure. And uh, and so over time, his you know his best front of house staff decided that they would rather work at a restaurant where they did have the ability to you know to earn better salary because they were great servers and so they could get you know twenty percent tips yeah. from the clientele. So that's one of the issues as well with that. Um, your best staff who could you know usually garner the best tips, they no longer in control of that. So they'll go and work somewhere where they feel like they have a bit more control over that. So that that was a real problem for them. Um, you know, losing your best staff because you can no longer get get the tips. Yeah. All right. Welcome back. Let's talk about family law in British Columbia now. Divorce, separation, child custody, shared custody of children. These are issues in sharp focus during the COVID-19 pandemic, including a backlog of court cases uh, caused by the pandemic. Let's check in with Stuart Zuckerman now. He's an attorney with the Zuckerman Law Group. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Stuart, thanks for coming on. Uh, good morning. Thanks to be here. Nice Have to be you- here. 
Have you noticed uh, an increase in in your caseload over at Zuckerman Law Group here with increased... I, I'm just wondering if there's more divorce and more separation with a lot of social anxiety going on as a result of this pandemic. Is that happening? Uh, we, we certainly have seen uh, a lot more phone calls about separation and with people referencing, you know, I can't take or can't stand continuing <laughs> to be in quarantine with my spouse or it's led to an increase in uh, arguments or problems like that. So there has been an increase that way. I'm not aware whether statistically there have been an increase in uh, filings for divorce in the uh, in the Supreme Court registry, uh, although I do see through media over the past months that there, around the world there has been uh, an uptick in uh, divorce yeah. filings. So it is expected. Is it even possible to get a divorce in British Columbia today? With the are the courts shut down or what's well, happening the, there? On, on March nineteenth, uh, the courts uh, shut down um, and uh, allowed only for urgent applications, primarily dealing with uh, the welfare of children or protection of children. And then on uh, and that went all the way to May twenty ninth. So anything that was scheduled to take place between March nineteenth and May twenty ninth was adjourned. And and then in April, the court began um, allowing applications for matters that had been adjourned during that period uh, and some other matters, some expanded matters beyond just child custody matters uh, to be dealt with by way of a telephone conference. So you can now schedule a telephone conference with a judge and in some cases a video conference uh, as long as the matter that's being dealt with can be dealt with within one hour and only deals with one issue. Typically when we would go to court, we would have two, three, four issues that we're dealing with with a judge and the hearing could be up to two hours uh, typically, although you could also schedule matters previously for a full day or more than a day, obviously, for trials. So now what they're doing is those matters that were adjourned during that period are being given priority for these one-hour hearings. Lawyers may have to trim the issues to only have one issue for the judge to deal with, and you're limited to one affidavit of up to 10 pages in length. Normally, you might have three or four affidavits, and you know one of them could be 30 or 40 pages, but now everything is reduced uh, to deal with one-issue matters. And there are um, uh, now you can deal with something called judicial case conferences by telephone, which never used to be able uh, to be done. You can also deal with trial management conferences by telephone, uh, which is a new thing, a uh, new way of preparing for trials that way. Um, so there are matters that can that are now more able to be scheduled and are being scheduled through either video conference or telephone conference that weren't previously handled that way. Well, wow, that's very interesting. And talk about a disruption of the way you guys operate over there over at Zuckerman Law, I imagine. Like, has this created a backlog of cases, do you think? Uh, well, it's certainly created uh, a lot of cases that have been adjourned. I, I'm, yeah. I myself have two matters that were scheduled during that period, but they're multi-issue matters. So it's difficult to get them reset right now because, you know, efficiency-wise, it doesn't really make sense in some cases to go in only on one issue because the matters are interrelated and you'd have to be repeating yourself over and over again with different judges uh, to discuss a variety of issues over several applications. So we, on some of those matters, we're waiting uh, to be able to schedule matters that are more than an hour or involve more than, than one issue. And, of course, trials have been adjourned during this period um, and then there's new things that come up that are waiting uh, to be dealt with as well. So it definitely has created a backlog of work and, and a reduction in our revenues just in terms of the fact that we can't proceed with some matters that we would otherwise be proceeding with. 
Right. Speaking to Stuart Zuckerman, Zuckerman Law Group, about divorce, family law, divorce, separation, child custody in, in B.C. during this pandemic. I, I was looking at a, a news release from the provincial government this week on some changes to family court rules uh, coming into effect next year. What are some of the major changes that the public is going to see here? Uh, well, I, I expect that uh, there's going to be an increased use of the things that are arising um, out of this. So in the provincial court, uh, there are, um, again, more uh, video conferencing hearings available or telephone conference uh, hearings available. You know, the provincial court deals with 110,000 uh, new cases every year, typically in addition to uh, 80,000 uh, violation tickets being dealt with in British Columbia each year. So you have about 200,000 uh, at a minimum uh, cases or hearings that go on in the provincial court every year. And so they're making uh, accommodations to deal with both criminal matters by video uh, appearance, which they have done for some time, but that's being yeah. expanded, where the prisoner would normally be brought by the police to the courthouse and be in the docket in the courtroom. Now the prisoner can speak by video conference from a police station or a jail uh, rather than being brought to the right. courthouse. Um, and same thing with family law. They are now expanding the use of both telephone conference and video conference uh, in family law. Um, and so all those things are being expanded, and they may be more efficient. For example, you know, in, in Supreme Court, typically... Uh, when we normally bring an application, you set it, the lawyers agree on a date, set a date, they go into court, and you arrive in court, and there's a list in court that they have all the chamber's applications with it, which are each set for two hours or less. But of course, there's only four hours of hearing time, or four and a half hours of hearing time during the day. So the judges and the clerks will uh, triage, and they will hear the 15-minute matters first, and then the 30-minute matters, and then they... They, they get on to the hour matters. Right. So, pretty often as lawyers, we appear in court with all of our binders ready to argue and prepared the night before or the week before, and you're sitting in the courtroom, and you may sit there all day long, and then at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, the judge says, well, you know, there's five of you here with five hours worth of applications, and I only have a one hour left in the afternoon, the rest of you can go home, I'm going to hear this matter. Um, and so the clients end up paying the lawyers to sit in court uh, for hours and hours, and you know, okay. at high hourly rates. Okay, um, uh, Stuart, your your voice your voice is fading a little bit in and out as I listen to you. I, I can I can make out what you're hearing, but what you're saying. But if maybe you could just speak a little closer to to your yes. telephone. Let Let me ask you this real quickly, and then we'll take a quick break and take and take some phone calls. I'll ask you a kind of um, uh, a family law one hundred and one question. If someone is, what are the rules around um, child support or spousal support? If you're not married, so let's say you've been you've been cohabitating with someone and then you break up. Um, if you have been, how long do you have to live with someone before you're required to pay spousal support when the relationship ends? Is it two right. years? Uh, well, two years is uh, of cohabitation is necessary to bring an application to divide assets or debt. Yeah. Uh, but once you've uh, so once you've lived with someone for two years or more, you're a common law spouse, and you you can deal with either assets, debts, or spousal support. Uh, but in the case of people who live together who have children, once you've had a child together, then even if you're less than two years, uh, you can bring applications for child or or spousal support. So you become a spouse by reason of having a child of that person, and then spousal support can be brought in those circumstances. 
All right, welcome back. My conversation with Stuart Zuckerman from the Zuckerman Law Group as we continue talking about divorce, separation, child custody, and family law in British Columbia. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to your calls right now. Scott calling from Surrey. Hi, Scott. Hey, how you doing? Good, good, go ahead. Good, good. Thanks for having me on. Um, just a question. Um, I don't have a legal separation with, with either uh, with my ex-wife We've been separated for eight years, and uh, the bo- my two kids are one of them's chosen to live with me. Sixteen, he's chosen to live with me for the past year and a half full time, and the second one, he's ten, and he's slowly heading in this direction as well. And the ex has now surfaced with a lawyer from a letter stating that she wants me to agree to continue to agree to seeing the ten-year-old a certain amount of time because she's worried that he's going to, as he gets older, make the decision to come over to me. And the yep. lawyer's giving me a deadline that I have to fill this out by a certain date and reply to her, which I've now missed that date. But I don't know what's going to happen as far as what letter am I going to expect next from this lawyer. Stuart, what do you think? Well, normally when lawyers send uh, demand letters, the, the deadlines that we impose are simply chosen by us in consultation with our clients. There's no, there's no law in B.C. that says that when you get a letter from a lawyer, you're required to respond by the date the lawyer imposes or by any other date it's only when you're served with an actual court application that the court rules say if you don't respond within the date set out in the notice period so normally when you receive a notice of application that says you must file a response within you know 11 days of your being served with the document if you fail to respond to that kind of a document then the other party can proceed to court and obtain a, a judgment or an order by default against you. Um, so th- that can have serious consequences. And I always tell people never ignore court applications or court documents that you're served. You have to meet those deadlines. Um, obviously, it's preferable to, if you want to avoid a court application and the expense that you'll go to, it's better to engage in negotiations by responding to a letter from a lawyer rather than ignoring it. But that's, yeah. you know, you're... That, that's the only risk, is if you ignore it, then the other party may say, okay, now we are forced to bring an application in order to get this guy to respond. In terms of the content of your issue, um, you know, your response can be, I, I, I have no problem agreeing that at this moment, the, you know, the, my ex will continue to see the child, but if the child's wishes change uh, this year or next, uh, and if I deem that it's in his best interest to no longer do that, then my position will be that no, you shouldn't have to go and, um, you know, and you can negotiate over that or go to court. Typically, the courts do give more weight to children's wishes once they're kind of an age of maturity. So, you know, with boys, the court may give more weight to a boy's opinion at kind of 13, 14 and up. With girls uh, who tend to mature quicker than boys, they might give more weight to a 11 or 12 year old and up. Um, but, it, you know, sometimes it also depends on the evidence of a child psychologist or a child counselor who uh, d- expresses to the court that they've interviewed the child and these are the reasons the child has given So for wanting to be more with one parent than the other. And, you know, if those reasons, if the kid says, I want to be with dad more because dad lets me play my PlayStation or Nintendo till midnight or I don't have to go to bed on time or I don't have to do my homework, obviously the court's not going to give much weight to that kind of reasoning for the kid to be with one parent. Whereas if the kid says, you know, mom doesn't listen to me or mom's never home or, and, you know, I have a better relationship with dad, if the explanation for the reason is more, uh, you know, well-being based, then the court's going to give more weight to that. 
Very interesting. 604-280-9898 is the number to call. Star 9898, toll free on your cell. Let's go to Jeff calling from Kamloops. Hi, Jeff. Hello. Hi, go ahead. Um, yeah, my uh, ex, has, uh, she resides in Alberta, Saskatchewan. She was in Lloyd Minister, which is a border city. Um, trying to get access to my kids and all that and trying to even uh, serve paperwork, I... I I don't even know where they are anymore. She kept moving from uh, Alberta to Saskatchewan. Every time I would uh, find out that she's in Alberta, go to Alberta courts, well, they can't do nothing because she's in Saskatchewan. Like, um, I tried dealing with it in B.C., but the lawyers in B.C. said, no, you got to deal with it with the province that the kids reside in. Um, My issue is they keep moving back and forth, and I'm kind of stuck. Wow. Stuart, what do you think of that? Well, it's a difficult situation. I agree with what the lawyers have told you in B.C., and that is that the B.C. courts only have jurisdiction over children who habitually reside in B.C. So if the children are residing in in Alberta, it's going to be the Alberta courts um, that are dealing with it. And, you know, the only answer when you don't know where the person is would be to hire uh, a process server or a a skip tracer or a private investigator to locate uh, where they are and serve them uh, with an application the court that's in their jurisdiction, if it's provincial court, um, uh, you can do that in, in the jurisdiction they're in, or if it's Supreme Court, there are different hubs of Supreme Courts okay. that uh, have a bigger radius that they catch um, in their jurisdiction. Thank you for the call, Jeff. Let's go, Your voice just fading a little bit there Sorry. again, Stuart. Um, squeeze in one more call here. Lisa in Vancouver. Hi, Lisa. Go ahead. Just quick question about spousal support. It seems like child support is very cut and dry, but, but spousal support isn't. So if you're married over 20 years and, and incomes have fluctuated, um, but in the last several years have been about the same, are, are you going to be on, on the hook for what my, my uh, salary used to be? Or is it based on what it's been in the last number of years? Okay, we just got about a minute left, Stuart. Sure. Spousal support is normally based on the, the current incomes of the parties at the time of the application. And it's really based, it's calculated based on the difference in the annual income. So if you're both earning the same income when you separate, even after a long-term marriage, there wouldn't be any spousal support because there's no difference in your incomes. Whereas if one party is earning 100000 at separation or at the time of the application and the other is earning fifty, you've got a $50,000 spread there, a differential. And that's the number that is used to determine the spousal support, which is typically on long-term marriages 2% times the number of years you're together times the difference in income. So if you were together 20 years times 2%, that's 40%. 40% times the difference in the party's annual incomes, let's say it's 50000 is the difference, 40% of that is 20000 You divide that by 12, and you've got your monthly spousal support, which is taxable to the recipient and tax-deductible to the person who pays it. So it's a form of equalizing the party's income. Once you get to 25 years, the presumption would be equal, uh, complete equalization of the incomes of both spouses. Stuart, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure. I, I, I appreciate it a lot. Stuart Zuckerman, he's an attorney with the Zuckerman Law Group.